Loving Father, we ask now that as we come to your word, that you'd be pleased by your Holy Spirit to speak to us and that you would enable us to understand clearly what it is that it means for us to be a true follower of Jesus. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, what is it that makes a successful leader? What is it that makes their record stand the test of time? Well, that's a question that many people considered this last week as former Prime Minister Scott Morrison was officially censured in federal parliament. Whatever it is that you think about ScoMo's behaviour, it's a pretty big statement to have a person's public ministry censured by federal parliament. How do we judge whether a person's leadership was a success or whether it was a failure? And we ask this question of many people, school principals, brigade captains, company CEOs, and of course, we ask it of church leaders. So let me put it another way. What makes a successful church leader? What would they need to do to leave fond memories amongst their followers? Or to put it another way, what would make an unsuccessful church leader? Uh, what would they do to leave bad and sad memories amongst their followers? Well, these are the kinds of questions that we bring to us, uh, bring together to, with us to this part of the scriptures where we look at the first half of 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Because here we will oversee the conversation between the Apostle Paul and the Christians in Corinth. 2,000 years ago, Paul planted a church and a, and a few years later he, he wrote to them to try and sort out a bit of a mess that they were making amongst the leadership of the church. And over the last seven weeks we've been doing a bit of a deep dive into this conversation and today we get to what really is the, the whole, um, basically the, the climax of this conversation as Paul really cuts to the chase. He's going to get really real about what it is that makes a successful leader of God's people. The big problem is that the people of Corinth were really, really worldly and they have been judging in a worldly way. Uh, they've been using the tools and criteria of the world to judge the leadership of the church. And in the end, they failed because they don't really understand what Christian leadership is really about. And that's because they don't really understand what the Christian life is about. So today, whether you're a follower of Jesus or someone who's still considering what that means, together we will see here a dramatic picture of what it means to truly follow Jesus. And whether you're an everyday Christian or a Christian in some kind of leadership, or even if you're not really a Christian at all just yet, what we will be doing now is looking and seeing what following Jesus really looks like. The chapter opens mid-argument as Paul asks the people in Corinth to look at their founding leaders in a proper way. Have a look at chapter 4, verse 1 on the screen. So look at Apollos and me as mere servants of Christ who have been put in charge of explaining God's mysteries. Paul tells the people in Corinth to look at him and the other leader, Apostle, as, as mere servants of Christ. In other words, he's telling them that they are lower class. They are the kind of class that people in Corinth would normally look down on. They are mere servants. Now when we see this word servant, 
in the Bible. We, we sometimes know that it refers to the most lowly of slaves. Well, there are different words in the original language for servant and slave. This particular one is, is not necessarily your bottom-end slave, but it's certainly not someone who's in control. It's someone who, at best, would be an assistant of some kind, working for somebody else. And as we see what Paul is saying here about him and about Apollos, we see that the apostles are assistants to Jesus. Now, at very best, they are just two ICs. But Jesus is the boss. And so if anyone thinks that Paul or Apollos or any church leader is in charge, what they are forgetting is that any church leader is just an assistant. The senior minister is always the assistant minister to Jesus. But what is their role? Well, the role is to be put in charge of explaining God's mysteries. They're responsible for carrying out the wishes of someone else, which in this case is God. It's a little bit like someone who is an executor of a will. You know, the person passes away, their will is read, and the executor's job is to do what's written down. Imagine if they said, oh, I don't think that's very fair. Let's give them a little bit more money or let's not give another house to those guys. They don't deserve it. Let's give it to them instead. You'd say they were a bad executor of a will. Of course, they would be. An executor of a will has got to do what it says and add nothing at all to it. That's the kind of thing that they have to do, not with the will, as in one's written when you've when you passed away to be read. It's actually talking about God's commands, God's plan, God's, as it says here, God's mysteries. These assistants need to explain God's mysteries. They've got to explain the wondrous mystery of the gospel of Jesus. Uh, To put it simply, God's people need to keep the gospel pure. We need to keep the gospel pure. Tell the news as it stands. Don't make anything up. You know, I think for all of us, we can be tempted at different times to market the gospel of God. You know, we sort of think, well, how can we make... The message of Jesus just a little bit more appealing because this world is so unchurched. So many people haven't been to church before. How do we make it a message that it would be easy to understand and, and maybe sort of brush off or knock off some of those things that just are a bit prickly? And what we get as a result of that is we have church leaders who act like the message of Jesus isn't relevant or, or that the message isn't even acceptable to people outside the church. They soften the message. They massage the message. They modify the message. And they do it to try and make it more appealing. They skip over the hard bits. And they might say that it's done because they want to have their friends and family believe in Jesus. And they don't want to do anything that might get in the way of that. But I wonder if it's actually a lot of the time we speak like that because we're a bit scared of being persecuted for speaking a controversial message. We don't want to be cancelled or ghosted or defriended or, in fact, receive physical persecution, as is the case in many parts of the world. But when we do that, when we give in to that temptation, what we are doing is we are being bad stewards of the gospel, bad stewards of what we have been entrusted with. Our job is to just tell it like it is 
and not to be ashamed of what's true. And that's what we see in verse 2. Now, a person who is put in charge as a manager must be faithful. If you're a manager, if you're looking after other people's stuff, other people's businesses, other people's work, you've got to make sure you manage it properly. You've got to do what the boss wants you to do. You've got to do what the person who owns the building or the business wants you to do. So how does that apply to us? Well, we in the church need to manage the truth faithfully. That's what Christians need to do. And we need to do that. We need to be faithful to the message because God is faithful to us. God is reliable. He never gives up on us. He never leaves us or forsakes us. This is what God is like. And it's what God's message is like. He is faithful. I wonder if you've ever had anyone be unfaithful to you. Maybe you've trusted someone with an important secret. And then you find out that they've told that secret to someone else who's then, well, they've told it to others and now everyone knows. Well, maybe it was a much bigger and more serious act of unfaithfulness. One that, that still triggers all these feelings and emotions within you. God is totally the opposite of that. He is completely faithful. And he will never let us down. And in the same way that he's fully faithful to us, we need to be fully faithful to him. And we do that by managing his message faithfully. We tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help us God. But there's another reason to be faithful in speaking God's message, and that is because it's only by this message that a person can truly know God. It's the only message that gets us to God. Let's imagine that to get access to God you needed a password. And you had that password, and you knew that password, but you didn't really like that password. It was just a bit hard to understand, and so you know, you, you just... You changed it a little bit and got rid of a few of the letters that were those, those weird sort of hashes and minus signs. You just get rid of those and make it a bit easier. And then someone says to you, hey, mate, have you got the password to log on to God's network? You know, work with me on this. You know, have you got the password? And you say, yeah, yeah, yeah. And you, and you give them the password. It's the password that you like. It's an easy one to remember. And you tell them that and they type it in and it says wrong password. And they say, it's the wrong password. Yeah, 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 but it's a much better password, yeah? It's like, no, it's a bad password. You've got to be faithful with the password. You've got to give me the true password. Because if you don't give someone the right password, they can't get access to God. You don't give someone the right gospel, and they don't get access to God. We have got to be faithful with the truth, with God's truth. But not all churches believe this as we do. Some people think that the message needs to be changed so that we'll keep up with the times. And that is what some of the people in Corinth clearly thought. At least that's how they thought about Paul. And this makes sense of verse 3a. He says, As for me, it matters very little how I might be evaluated by you or by any human authority. See, in the end, Paul doesn't care what others think or say about him. The, the, 
doesn't care how they evaluate him, how they judge him. In the end, Paul is not a people pleaser. He doesn't care what others think about his message or his ministry. And I've got to say, I reckon he's pretty gutsy. It's a pretty gutsy thing to say, I am not a people pleaser. And, and I find this really hard. I actually really want to be pleasing you. I want you to like me. You know, it's kind of, I don't think that's totally weird. I mean, it would be similarly weird if I said, I really want you to hate me. It's like, yes, you are weird. But you can see here that if our ministry, if our life, the way we speak to each other, the way we relate to each other is done so in such a way that, that we just want to please each other and not say the truth, we completely miss the point. Paul doesn't do things to please others. He does things to please God. But not only does he not care about what other people think, he's also be careful about what he thinks about himself. So in verse 3b, he says, I don't even trust my own judgment on this point. He says, you know, I, I, I won't trust my own view. I'm going to leave that up to God. And when it comes to evaluating what he says and how he lives and all of that stuff, here is what he thinks, verse 4. He says, my conscience is clear, but that doesn't prove I'm right. It is the Lord himself who will examine me and decide. When it comes to his performance, Paul reckons he's in the right. You know, that's what his conscience is telling him. You know, he's a guy who's met Jesus. He understands the shape of the ministry and he reckons, oh, I think I'm on the money with this. You know, I reckon I've been serving the Lord, not serving the world. I reckon I've been acting as an apostle really should. But even with a healthy conscience that's fed by the truth, he still knows that it's not up to him to mark his own test. It is God himself who will mark the test. It's the Lord himself who will examine him and will decide. And as it was with Paul, so it is with us today. Because the ultimate judge of leaders is the Lord. He judges our leaders and that's because he judges everyone. He judges everybody who follows Jesus. But you know, it's very possible for a church or even a whole denomination to get things very wrong. We see this around the world. We see it around the region. And so in the end, our judge is the Lord. Something that was said to me a long time ago was that uh, think of... You're, when you're speaking to people, think about the fact that there's only one person in the audience. There's only one person in the grandstand, and that is God. And it's a pretty gutsy thing to do. You know, when you're chatting to people at school or in the workplace or in the family or your brigade or your community group or your whatever it is in whatever context, you kind of want to just be pleasing them and making the path of least resistance. But ultimately... The only person we should be trying to please is God himself. He is the one who is the ultimate judge of leaders. And I tell you, when you think about it that way, it is ultimately quite freeing. It's a relief to know that the only judge who really matters is our Heavenly Father. And compared to everyone else, it doesn't matter. And because Paul sees the world this way, he comments about the way that the 
Corinthians want to keep judging him. Verse 5. He says, So don't make judgments about anyone ahead of time before the Lord returns. For he will bring out darkest secrets to light and will reveal our private motives. Then God will give to each one whatever praise is due. Paul rebukes these Corinthians and says, Why are you judging the leaders like this? I mean, it's not that Paul doesn't want to judge people at all. I mean, to be honest, the whole of 1 Corinthians, 16 big chapters, is basically him saying, I'm judging you and your church. So he's okay with that kind of thing. But he wants to make sure that when they do make judgments, it's according to God's God's eyes, and it's not seeing the judging in a way that is done in a worldly way. And so, you know, he says it is wrong to judge leaders about unimportant things, which is what they were clearly doing. Because God's the only judge who matters, and he's the only judge who judges properly. And that is because he's the only one who can truly see inside of us. He's the only one who can truly, deeply examine us and our hidden motives. Uh, You don't know what my motives are tonight as I speak to you. If I want to speak with you one-on-one or in a small group or you want to speak with me, I I don't know really what's going on in your mind and why you're saying that. What is your deep motive? You don't know. I don't know. No one knows. But God knows. And so who are we to, to be judging the way that the Corinthians clearly are? Because ultimately... The one who judges is God, and ultimately the one who rewards is God. Uh, We know that God will reward those who faithfully serve him. If you've been with us the last few weeks, you'll know this, and I'll say it again tonight. It's not about us earning our salvation. That, That God will say, I will reward you by giving you heaven because you've done all these good things. doesn't work that way. Now, this is just talking about people who are already friends with God, people who have already come to Jesus and said, Jesus, I want you to be my king, and I'm sorry for the way that I've lived. And so when we do that, we are friends with Jesus. But it's what happens next. This is what the reward bit's talking about here. And so that's why the opinion of God matters so much. And with that, he now starts to really drive home the point. Verse 6. He says, Dear brothers and sisters, I've used Apollos and myself to illustrate what I've been saying. But if you pay attention to what I've quoted from the scriptures, you won't be proud of one of your leaders at the expense of another. If you really listen to the Bible, he's saying, then you'll stop being proud of one leader instead of another. If you really follow God's word, you'll stop saying that one leader is better than another. Because God's word has made it clear that boasting in leaders is wrong. And now he rebukes them a bit more for their wrong behaviour. Verse 7a. He says, for what gives you the right to make such a judgment? Why do you reckon you guys can judge the effectiveness of one leader over another? What makes you think that you're as good as God? He says to the people of Corinth. What makes you think you're so smart that you can make the sort of judgments that only God can make. And then he says, secondly, what do you have that God hasn't already given you? 
you know, all your gifts, your abilities, every bit of knowledge about everything has come from God. So why do you think that you've got some sort of access to the truth that's different to the Bible? Everything you've got's come from God. And so yet, why is it that you think you can stand against God's word? And then he says, 7c, And if everything you have is from God, why do you boast as though it were not a gift? If God's given you everything, why do you claim it to be your own? It's almost as like they're, they're, they're plagiarising God. You know, God is the one who does all this stuff and they're taking the credit for themselves. We can't do that. We mustn't plagiarise God. We can't be the ones that make the sort of judgments that only God can make. Because when we do so, we say we don't need God anymore. And this is a pretty big, Paul, a big call for Paul to make here. But it's one that we all need to hear. It's really easy for us to forget that our life and, and any ministry that we have, that it's all given to us by God alone. And it's, and it's so easy for us to rule and judge our ministry as though it's just you know, a, a physical ministry, a, a natural life, a worldly role. You know, we, we just think of things in terms of what you see. But it's all from God. It's all by God. And if you get this wrong, well, so many other things get wrong as well. And now we start to see that as the chapter continues. Verse 8, he says, You think you already have everything you need. You think in Corinth that you're already rich. You've begun to reign in God's kingdom without us. Oh, I wish you were already really reigning, for then we would be reigning with you. Paul hits the sarcasm button hard. He accuses them of proudly claiming that they've got everything in life. And now they can move on from what the apostles already told them. They can go across to Christianity Mark 2. They can move on from the foundation and create an all-new building. And this building, this kingdom that they've created, well, they're the kings. And they think, oh, we can rule without even the apostles, those embarrassing apostles. We don't need them anymore because we have now got kingdom of God 2.0. They've arrogantly moved on from the apostles. In the end, they're just sounding like the pagan worldly rulers and they've totally missed the point. Because you want to know what leading in God's kingdom really looks like? Well, have a listen to this. Verse 9. Instead, I sometimes think God has put us apostles on display like prisoners of war at the end of a victor's parade, condemned to die. We have become a spectacle to the entire world, to people and angels alike. What does he do? He tells them that true leadership is the complete opposite of what they think. They want their apostles to be accepted by the world, to look like kings, to have perfect teeth and expensive sneakers. But they're totally wrong. And that's because the way of the apostles is completely the opposite. Paul compares the way of the apostles to the gladiatorial death in the Colosseum. Prisoners were brought into the main arena and they were there 
to fight to the death. Or they were thrown to the lions as sport. As their life ends, they are humiliated and mutilated by animals. You want to see what a glorious apostle looks like? Have a look at the humiliation of being thrown to the lions. The humiliation of being executed as an innocent person. Look at the humiliation of Jesus. Because a glorious leader is like our humiliated Messiah. He is our true leader. And a true apostle, a true follower of Christ, follows Christ in every way. And that means a true apostle is ready to to live like Christ and to die like Christ. And this is how that looks. Verse 10a. He says, Our dedication as apostles to Christ makes us look like fools, but you claim to be so wise in Christ. In other words, if you're going to be a follower of Jesus, you're going to look stupid. And so why do the Corinthians think that they look so smart? But then he continues the contrasts. Uh, Listen to hear how badly the Corinthians have got it. Verse 10b, he says, the the, the apostles say, we are weak, but you, you, you Corinthians, you are so powerful. You are honoured, but we are ridiculed. Can you see how they've got leadership so badly wrong in Corinth? Can you see how they've completely misunderstood what life should be like for followers of Jesus? From there, Paul now describes what that life is actually like. 11a says, Even now we apostles go hungry and thirsty and we don't have enough clothes to keep warm. We are often beaten and have no home. We work wearily with our own hands to earn our living. It's not really a very attractive way to describe being an apostle. In fact, there's nothing attractive about an apostle's salary. If you were having a job ad and you wanted to say, hey, we'd like you to become an apostle, uh, well, what is it like? Well, you'll be hungry, thirsty, naked, beaten, homeless and fatigued. But other than that, it's great. But what does it mean for the attitude? 12b. We apostles bless those who curse us. We apostles are patient with those who abuse us. We apostles appeal gently when evil things are said about us. They don't retaliate. They don't pay back. They don't lawyer up. They cop it on the chin. They turn the other cheek. Because that's what followers of Jesus do. Followers of Jesus don't retaliate. And I reckon this is a very attractive thing amongst believers. It is an attractive and an honourable way to relate to others. It is a stunning thing to love enemies. And it's extra beautiful because that's exactly what Jesus did, isn't it? So how does it all turn out for Paul and the apostles? Well, here's the last bit of today's verse, 13b. It says, yet we are treated like the world's garbage, like everybody's trash, right up to the present moment. 
They get treated like rubbish, like sewage. That, that one of those words there is, you know, if I really wanted to be very literal, it would probably be a rude word, which I'm not going to say from the pulpit, but you can understand what I might be saying. You want to see the glory of the apostles? Look in the toilet. That is what the glorious apostles are like. It is the stuff of human waste. It's pretty shocking, isn't it? It's pretty offensive. And no matter what you think or what I think, double that offence to those who are in Corinth because they are so fussed about things, about appearances and about the way that you're connected into the world. You know, you know they, they think that that we should be photographed on the red carpet, mentioned in rich lists, quoted by presidents, mobbed by stadium crowds. That is what a great leader should be like. And Paul says, you want to see what a great leader looks like? Look in the toilet. That is the glory of the apostles is excrement. But that's what real leaders are like. And that is because real leaders are like Jesus. For this is what the most successful leader of all is like. Isaiah 53. My servant grew up in the Lord's presence like a tender green shoot, like a root in dry ground. There was nothing beautiful or majestic about his appearance, nothing to attract us to him. He was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows acquainted with deepest grief. We turned our backs on him and looked the other way. He was despised and we did not care. Yet it was our weaknesses he carried. It was our sorrows that weighed him down. And we thought his troubles were a punishment from God, a punishment for his own sins. But he was pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sins, beaten so we could be whole, whipped so we could be healed. All of us like sheep have strayed away. We have left God's paths to follow our own. Yet the Lord laid on him the sins of us all. 